Well, I want to welcome you uh, to Trinity Bible Church this morning. Welcome both here in the sanctuary and in our worship center. And we have been in a series uh, called Discover Jesus, studying the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been using um, four questions, Discovery Bible Study questions, that we've been using here on Sunday morning that uh, many of you, I know, have been using just in your personal time. Uh, studying through the book of Mark, and I've heard some great stories of people that are um, studying the book of Mark together with someone else. Uh, I heard a story of someone studying with their brother who lives several states away and kind of doing it over uh, a video call, and uh, just God's, God's at work. God's moving in this season. So the book of Mark is uh, where we've been, and today we're going to see what is probably one of the strangest stories in the New Testament. And that's, that's saying something for the Gospel of Mark, because there's been a story that we've uh, seen already, if you've been reading through, where Jesus casts out uh, a legion of demons, and he sends them into a herd of 2,000 pigs that run squealing off of a cliff. And so to say that this is one of the strangest stories is really uh, saying something. But the story we're going to see today is one that we would read and be kind of unsure about. Maybe it wouldn't sit well with you. Maybe you're hoping, man, I I hope my friend who doesn't know Jesus doesn't ask me about that story. I'm not going to know how to explain that. And so turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 8 this morning in your Bible. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes, and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered them, You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Now, this story begins normally enough. Someone brings a blind man to him and says, would you touch him and heal him? This happened over and over in the Gospels. And so in this instance, Jesus did what I know uh, any of us would do, take him outside the city and spit in his face. (laughs) Strange, right? But that's not the strangest part of this story, is it? After Jesus spits in this man's face and touches him, and he, he asks him, uh, do you see anything? Jesus asking this man if he sees? Like usually when Jesus heals, it's like, all right, go in peace, you're healed, go on your way. But here Jesus is, is asking, it's like he's kind of checking his work here. Did this really work? Did this healing really take? What's, what's going on here? Is Jesus 
Not sure on this particular day if his powers are on point. Is he going through a slump in his healing ministry? But what's even stranger is in response to Jesus' question, the stranger says, yeah, I see, so far so good, I see men that look like trees walking. Uh Uh-oh. Is he going to need glasses now? Like, he sees, but things are a little blurry. Apparently, even though he can now see better than he did before, he doesn't quite yet have 20-20 vision. This man has been half-healed, partially restored. So Jesus does it again. He places his hands on the man's eyes, and this time his sight is fully restored, and he sees everything clearly. But it takes two attempts. Strange. A strange story. What do we do with a story like this? If, if someone were to ask you, what do you make of this? Jesus needs kind of two attempts to heal this man. Well, there's a few options. Um, some say, would say that, well, uh, Jesus spit in this man's face and the man couldn't see clearly right away because there was still spit in his eyes. Uh, gross, number one. But... <laughs> Not a great explanation for what's going on here. Others others would say, well, Jesus, you know, he just wasn't on his A game that day. He had to take a couple swings at it. But that that makes no sense. The the Jesus that uh, walked into the room of a young 12-year-old girl who had died, took her hand and said, "Hey, hey, get up, raised her from the dead like it was nothing, Certainly he's not, you know, stymied by some case of blindness here. So a better option is that Jesus is trying to teach us something and teach his disciples something, something that is so important that Mark uh, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to include all of these details, details that Like if Mark was just trying to make up a story about the Son of God, wouldn't really look good. So there's there's something that God is trying to communicate, something that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples and to us, and that's why Mark includes all of these details. So what is Mark trying to teach us? Or I'm sorry, what is Jesus (laughs) trying to teach us? And what is uh, the Holy Spirit trying to teach us through Mark's writing here. Well, we have to zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture of Mark, of kind of where we've been. We're about halfway through the book of Mark, so it's a good time to kind of recap here uh, this morning. Chapter 8 is the turning point of Mark's gospel. We read uh, math, or Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 30, where Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And they respond, and then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And they respond by saying, you're the Messiah, Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples. That is the hinge point of the gospel of Mark. It's the climax of the gospel of Mark. Everything from chapters 1 
through 8 leads up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And remember, Mark's main focus is answering the question, who is Jesus? In chapter 1, Mark answers this question four times. He answers this question as he lays out in verse 1 his title page, sort of, of the book of Mark. This is about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He reveals it uh, both in the Old Testament and in John the Baptist and his ministry fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Uh, the answer comes when Jesus is baptized and his heavenly Father pronounces, hey, this is my beloved Son. And then in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And that question is even answered when Jesus is at the temple and he casts out uh, demons and, and one of the demons addresses him saying, what are you, what are you, we know exactly who you are, he says. The demon says, you're the holy one of God. And so over and over, Mark is attempting to answer the question, who is Jesus? The only problem is that no one in chapters one through eight seems to get it except, except the demons. They're the ones that haven't figured out you're the Holy One of God. Or uh, later on, one of the demons he casts out says, you're the, you're the Son of the Most High God. But everyone else, all of the people in chapters 1 through 8, are, they're, they're all over the place about who Jesus is. In chapter 3, uh, the crowd loves Jesus, follows him everywhere he goes, but the religious leaders are convinced that he's getting his power from the Prince of Demons. To his family, to Jesus' family, he's an embarrassment. Like, they're convinced that he's lost his mind. He's gone insane. Like, they try to bring him, come, come on home, Jesus. They try to bring him back home. The disciples then, I mean, of all the people that should understand, uh, they don't really know what to think either. They're confused. It becomes more evident with every chapter that Jesus is the Messiah, but it seems like with every chapter, the disciples become more confused. In chapter 4, Jesus calms the sea, gets into the boat. Disciples look at him like, who is this man? In chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, multiplies uh, the, the bread, and, and then he walks on water and meets them in the boat again. And they're terrified of Jesus' power over the sea because uh, it says in Mark 6, they gained no insight from the incident of the loaves. They didn't get any closer to understanding who Jesus was, even after feeding the 5,000. And then in chapter 8, it's maybe the most startling example of the disciples' lack of understanding. Right before Jesus heals the blind man, that strange story that we read, right before this, Jesus feeds 4,000. People already fed 5,000, now he feeds 4,000 people. Second time, he's miraculously fed the multitude. And after this miracle, Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees. Then he gets in the boat and starts teaching his disciples about the Pharisees. But the disciples can't even really pay attention to what Jesus is saying because in Mark chapter 8, verse 16, we learn that they're not listening because they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They're in the boat with Jesus. And what are they concerned about? We don't have food. We don't have bread. 
Jesus had just fed 4,000 people. Before that, he fed 5,000 people. And now they're worried about having food for like this short journey. I mean, bread is like, that's like Jesus' thing. That's in his wheelhouse. But the disciples, they, they're so worried that they can't even concentrate on what Jesus is trying to teaching them, teach them. And it's shocking. How can they be worried about this? And so in response, Jesus unleashes eight questions on them in verse 17. Mark 8, verse 17, aware of this, aware of what they're worried about, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Don't you understand yet? And that's the end of that scene. And that question just kind of floats out in space. And the clear answer to the question is no, they don't understand yet. They appear to be completely blind to the reality of who they're in the boat with and that he's the promised Messiah. And it's at this point, with that question still kind of reverberating, that it moves, that Mark moves to begin to tell the story of Jesus going to Bethsaida and healing this blind man. The blind man who first only sees in part, but who then has his sight fully restored. And then right after this teaching of, about the blind man, we see the, the climactic moment of the book of Mark. Mark 8, 27 through 30, Jesus goes with his disciples about 25 miles away from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi on the road. On the way there, they're talking, and he just decides to kind of ask them. Jesus was so good at asking questions, and he just decides to ask them, who do people say that I am? And they say, John the Baptist or Elijah or, you know, maybe one of the prophets. That's what people are saying. Interesting that the disciples don't mention the Messiah. People aren't really thinking that Jesus is the Messiah, they thought, I don't know, they thought the Messiah would be more impressive, maybe, that he would do greater signs, greater miracles, that he would be this warrior who would drive out the Romans. And so Jesus then gets more pointed in verse 29 and asks, but you, who do you say that I am? And remember, up to this point, nobody seems to get it. Jesus, by the end of 8, verse 20, he's saying, don't you understand yet? And shockingly, here in response to Jesus' question, Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Shocking that he would understand this and know this. This is the question, or the, the, this statement that Jesus is the Messiah would be a profound statement for a Jew to make, saying that uh, you are the fulfillment of all the Jewish scriptures. You are the one who we're waiting for. 
You are the one who will save us. You are the one who our, our hopes are all staked on. We, we believe this. You are the one. You're the anointed one. We believe you are the Messiah. And what a turnaround for these disciples as Peter confesses this. And it's, it's like his eyes are open for the first time and he's seeing clearly. Now, immediately after Peter, Peter's declaration, Peter's confession, um, things are about to get worse for him in a minute. But immediately after, Jesus warns them, hey, don't tell anyone, which seems odd. But what happens next kind of explains it. Uh, Jesus then, in verse 31, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Verse 31 says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. This was the first time that Jesus started talking about this, that he started talking about the suffering that was to come. It's, it's not until they finally realize that Jesus is the Messiah that he begins teaching them about what kind of Messiah he is. And in verse, uh, chapter 8, he says that I'm going to suffer. In chapter 9, he says I'm going to suffer. In chapter 10, again, he teaches them I'm going to suffer. Now that they understand that he's the Messiah, he's trying to get them to understand what kind of Messiah he is. Now, they should have known that the Messiah would come and suffer. The Old Testament prophesies that. The Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would come and be a suffering Messiah, but, but Peter isn't having it. And in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Often our tendency is to look at that and criticize Peter and say, Peter, you knucklehead, right? Like rebuking Jesus, what are you thinking? But put yourself in Peter's shoes. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is soaring at the heights of success, crowds following him, working these incredible miracles. Yeah, there are some detractors. There are some critics. There are some people plotting to kill him. But he's wildly popular. And so for, for Peter to take him aside, from Peter's vantage point, it, it, it makes sense. Maybe he's thinking, well, Jesus just needs a little pep talk here. You know, surely, Jesus, this will never happen to you. Like, we know the Messiah is going to be a conquering king. No more of this suffering talk. Let's get out there and fight those Romans. Jesus then responds by rebuking Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Anytime Jesus calls you Satan, that's a bad day, right? But Jesus won't let anything detract him from his mission. He, he knows where he's headed. He knows he's going to suffer. He knows he's headed to the cross. And so what do we learn about God here? We've been working through these, these discovery questions. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about Jesus here? We learn that, that Jesus is the Messiah, but not necessarily the kind of Messiah that they anticipated. He's the suffering Messiah. 
And what do we learn about us? What do we learn about us as humans that, that again, we see that we want Jesus to fit in our mold? Peter wanted Jesus to fit his version of, of the Messiah. And remember, in the Gospels, Mark spends eight chapters answering the question, who is Jesus? Every chapter, every verse leads up to that climactic moment in Mark 8, 29, where Peter says, you are the Messiah. That question's answered, and Jesus never goes back to that question. But what he seeks to teach them now, what he focuses on now, is is a new question. What kind of Messiah is he? Because until they can answer that question, they won't see clearly. They'll only have half sight. At this point, their blindness is only half healed. Now, this is, this is a great story in Mark, but, but what in the world does it have to do with us? Well, again, let's go back to that story of the blind man. This two-stage healing of the blind man, this blind man who's healed in two parts. Peter and the disciples in many ways are just like the blind man that Jesus healed right before this. Uh, the blind man's able to see partially, but not clearly. And often that's true of people today. That we have a, a partial picture of Jesus and who he is. There, there are so many people who, like Jesus, are, or who, like, like the disciples, uh, like a lot of the crowds, are fascinated with Jesus, familiar with the things he's done, yet they don't see him clearly. We see that uh, the disciples and, and many of the people that responded to Jesus in Mark chapter 1 through 8 had kind of their own version of Jesus, created their own picture of Jesus, had half knowledge, half sight about who Jesus is. And instead of trusting in, in Jesus, the suffering Messiah, and trusting wholly and completely in, in the work that he came to do. Often, today, people see Jesus as a good guy, a good dude, a guy who uh, taught some great things about, you know, loving your enemies and, and kindness, but, but they don't acknowledge the great things that Jesus did to save us from our sins, for our salvation. People think, you know, Jesus is a great guy that I think I want my kids to be like, Uh, But they don't personally put their faith and trust in Jesus and his work, his suffering, his sacrificial work on the cross to save them from their sins. They see Jesus, but they don't see him clearly as that suffering Messiah. And so what is Jesus asking of us? He's asking us to put our faith in him, the, the real truth of who the Messiah is, the suffering Messiah who would suffer for our sins. And then another way that I think we can be half-sighted today, that we can be sort of half-blind to the truth today, is that there are many who put their trust in Jesus and what he did for them on the cross to save them from their sins so that they can be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven when they die, 
And then they assume that everything in this life is just going to turn around and be magically amazing. And they'll kind of go off and, and live happily ever after like the Christian version of a Disney movie. But, but that's not the reality that Jesus paints for his disciples. Look at what he tells them next about what they'll experience in this life. The end of chapter 8, right after he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, Jesus calls the crowd along with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So what is Jesus asking of me? He says, take up your cross. And some of us would hear that and think, wait a second, I thought Jesus took up the cross for me on my behalf. I thought he suffered for me. And yes, Jesus took the punishment for our sin. He endured that sentence of death on our behalf on the cross so that we could have eternal life as we put our faith and trust in his suffering work, his sacrificial work on our behalf. But what Jesus is teaching us is that in this life, we are to follow him, to follow the suffering Messiah, to take up our cross and follow. And so many Christians today have half the picture. They, 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 love the picture of, of, of Jesus and his forgiveness and grace for their sins, but that call to follow, that call to follow Jesus and to give up their life, to take up their cross and follow him, they're not, not too much about that. Thinking that, you know, once I become a Christian, I'll kind of live this life of health and wealth and, and prosperity. But if, if, if that's your view of the Christian life, you're, Jesus is teaching here that you're, you're half-sighted. You're half-blind. Yes, there's eternal reward. And yes, there's pleasure forevermore. And yes, there's joy in this life. I mean, we have the Holy Spirit living within us as believers in Jesus Christ. We have the joy of salvation and forgiveness and of relationship with God. But in this life, we're called to follow a Savior who was crucified by the world. Could it, could it be that many today have created their own picture of who Jesus is? A nice picture of Jesus, but, but not the real picture, the true picture of the suffering Messiah who asks you to believe in his death and suffering on your behalf, but then asks you to follow him in his sufferings. We, we don't have the freedom to create a version of Jesus that's just agreeable to our way of living and our way of thinking. And so I, I can't help but think that there may be those here today 
that see Jesus, but maybe not clearly. You believe that he is, in fact, the Son of God. You believe that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the one who came to seek and save the lost. You trust in him to forgive you of your sins, but are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? Do you you trust him that much? Now, this doesn't mean as Christians that we go out and seek out suffering. But what it does mean is that we're willing to suffer, willing to do whatever Jesus asks us to do. I think of it this way. I think of it as we're willing to write Jesus a blank check with our life. We're willing to say, Jesus, I'll follow you no matter what it costs me. And I remember when I was 16 years old, and I, I was in this church for, for, for years, grew up in this church, but I never reached that moment in my life where I'd written Jesus that blank check with my life. And I remember praying and, and turning my life over to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what it means for my life. And, I, and at that point in my life, at 16 years old, it meant that I'm probably going to be you know, made fun of by some of the friends on, on, on the football team. But, but I wonder for you, have you ever had that moment in your life where you said, Jesus, I'm willing to take up my cross. I give up my life. You know, Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? He who tries to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life because of me will save it. And so what does it mean today for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Maybe it means being willing to to sacrifice your reputation by being public about the fact that you're a Christian, not being ashamed, about the fact that you're a follower of Jesus. And that might mean some, some changes among friends or coworkers not participating in the same kind of you know sinful talk or behavior that they are maybe it's maybe it's enduring real persecution in this life maybe it's you know taking a stand for your faith maybe it means that maybe your job wants you to agree to things or sign things that you can agree to in good conscience as a christian and you have to take a stand maybe it's maybe it's in resisting temptation and doing battle with sin instead of just giving up and giving in. Maybe it's enduring actual physical suffering in this life, and there's plenty of it. And continuing to trust in Jesus in the midst of grief, in the midst of loss, in the midst of pain. Maybe it's, it's resisting the cultural norm of sex before marriage and being, being faithful to your spouse after marriage. Maybe it's, it's forgiving instead of harboring a grudge. I mean, it's, it feels so good to nurse that grudge, to nurse that wound. But maybe it's forgiving instead. Maybe it's, maybe it's simply putting down the phone and picking up the Bible. 
And this looks different in each season. I think for me, when I was 16 years old, it was my reputation. Taking up my cross and following Jesus was like, all right, I'm going to be outed as the Christian kid, like, and I'm going to have to endure that, that suffering and take the heat for that. At, at 22, it meant something different. It meant being honest about sin in my life and being serious, becoming serious about battling sin. At 26, it meant, uh, you know, taking up my cross meant being, being willing to uh, pastor a church way before I felt ready. I don't know what you guys were thinking, right? But, <laughs> but then even today, I don't want any of us to think that all our moments of taking up our cross and following Jesus are in the past. E- even today at 35, as a, as a dad with young kids, what does it mean to deny myself and follow Jesus? It means, it means coming home from a long day of work, and I don't always do this perfectly, but something that the Lord's been challenging me with is you know, coming home from a long day of work and not, not checking out, but it, it, engaging, kicking into gear and engaging and serving my family wholeheartedly. And so I, I wonder for you, can you, can you still say today, maybe you said at one point in your life, but can you still say today that, you've, that, that you're giving Jesus that blank check with your life? That you're willing to follow him no matter what it costs you, that you're willing even to suffer? Are you seeing a clear picture of Jesus and a clear picture of following him, that our Messiah is a is a suffering Messiah, and all of us are called to follow him. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Lord, we come to you this morning and we're challenged by your word. Lord, we, um, God, we love the, the benefits of what we receive from you in your gospel. God, we love your grace and your forgiveness. We love the fact that you now, through our faith in Jesus Christ and the grace that you've poured out on us, you now call us children of God. We love that we're welcomed home into your family and into your presence. God, may we, may we be those that also love the reality that we get to identify with you in your sufferings. And we get to follow you. And we have the joy and privilege of, of, of um, denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following you. God, we have the, I, I think of the, the apostles in the book of Acts, who as they suffered, they counted it 
joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for your name. God, may we love May we love the fact that we get to take up our cross and follow you in your sufferings the same way that that we love your grace and, and forgiveness in our lives. May we rejoice that we're counted worthy to be your disciples and to follow you. Lord, I know there are those this morning that there are specific areas in their life where, God, you are revealing and you are showing to them that they're, where they're not giving something up or where they're holding on to something and you're calling them to let go. You're calling them to, to sacrifice. You're calling them to this radical life of following you. And God, I thank you for that work you're doing in each person's heart. We want to follow you, Jesus, no matter what it costs us. In Jesus' name, amen.